I talked to you last week about history makers and uh, thank you for all who have given some good comments about that. But I wakened Monday morning with two history makers and their messages ringing in my, in my heart. And Holy Spirit began to talk to me about them and, and uh, their message. He talked to me about some of the statements or words that they, they, they made, and they are bold words. They are, they're not politically correct words. They are challenging words. They are inspiring words. They are, they are instructive words. They are corrective words. History makers speak words that define things, words that, that define history. One word is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a true history maker in our nation. I've talked about it a couple of times over the past 20 years, but its relevance right now is incredible. It's so important that we hear some of these phrases, and I'll get to that in just a moment. The other word that I heard early Monday morning is from the prophet Ezekiel, and I want to start there. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. I'll read from the Message Bible. God himself describes the watchman anointing uh, and he describes its calling and it is an anointing that Holy Spirit is right now pouring out upon the true ecclesia, the true remnant that are standing with him. It is an anointing that is now being poured out. God describes it, God says, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the family of Israel or the people of God. Whenever you hear me say something, warn them from me. If I say to the wicked, you are going to die and you don't sound the alarm warning them that it's a matter of life or death, they will die and it'll be your fault. I'll hold you responsible. Those words have gripped me for several years now. It's why I feel I must raise my voice. But if you warn the wicked and they keep right on sinning anyway, they'll most certainly die for their sin, but you won't die. You'll have saved your life. And if the righteous turn back from living righteously and take up with evil, when I step in and put them in a hard place, they'll die. If you haven't warned them, they'll die because of their sins and none of the right things they've done will count for anything. And I'll hold you responsible. But if you warn these righteous people not to sin and they listen to you, they'll live because they took the warnings. And again, you'll have saved your life. Those words have been echoing in my spirit for several days now. The church is held responsible for speaking a warning for sin. You, you cannot say that it is not your calling, not in be a real church. I have heard churches and leaders say, well, that's just not our calling, but you cannot say that 
and be a true church. We are responsible to declare the whole counsel of Almighty God. Believers, the believers in Christ are responsible to speak up. The clergy are held responsible for, for not speaking up. Saying nothing costs us our way of life. Speaking up saves it. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Almighty God. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 3 paraphrased says, God says, When my people refuse to stand for truth, they will go from bad to worse, worse and show. They will show they care nothing for me. It will be proof that it is all about them. The silence of an apostate church has caused things to go from bad to worse in our nation. America suffers right now because of a nominal or apostate church in our nation. And it's time for the uncompromising church of King Jesus to rise in this nation. When it does, God will, God will back it with his presence. He's going to back it with his power. He is going to pour copious amounts of his glory on it from glory to glory to glory to glory. Second Corinthians 3.18 says. Nominal which means in name only. Nominal Christianity is described for us in Jeremiah 18 and verse 15. It says, my people have stumbled off ancient highways and walk in muddy paths. Therefore, the land becomes desolate, a monument to stupidity. That's the way it, it, it feels sometimes today in our nation. It feels like we're walking in mud past monuments of stupidity. You ever walked in mud? I have. Many times when elk hunting or deer hunting, but I have walked in mud. You, you, you can hardly move if you walk in mud. You slip and you lose your balance. You, you stick and you have to pull harder uh, to move. When, when you leave the ancient proven God paths, God says you start to walk in mud. America has been walking in mud because nominal churches refuse to rise and be the real church. And that has got to change and it's got to change right now. America is walking in mud. And when, when you do, you're going to lose your balance. You, there, there's going to be consequences and monuments to stupidity will, will be built in the land. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one is a word that I believe is for America right now. God says this. I warned you when you were prosperous, but you said, don't bother me. We're prospering so much, Lord, we don't have time to go to church. We're just prospering. We've got to build our business. 
God, we're just prospering. We're too busy prospering. We don't have time to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We don't have time to get them to church. We don't, we don't have time to come to prayer. We, we're just prospering too much, Lord. Our only hope for getting out of the mud is returning to God. And for that to happen, God needs his true church to rise. He needs true believers to rise. He needs his ecclesia to rise and make a stand for what he says. And nothing else is going to make a difference. The ecclesia must rise and see revival in the land. And we need to see it now. Isaiah 56 and verse 10 describes a nominal or in name only church's condition where the watchman's anointing and the call of God is concerned. It's, it's very confrontive and probably why I, Isaiah was persecuted so much. But Isaiah 56, 10, Isaiah prophesies this. His watchmen are blind, they're ignorant, they're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, and loving to slumber. What good is a watchdog if it cannot bark? The nominal church and its leaders right now are pictured as lazy dogs with no bark. That is not the church Jesus Christ is building. It is not the church he is returning for. And it's time for Christ's true church to shake off the fog of passivity in these last five weeks or so before this election and stand up and say what God says. There is no other option. America needs sold out Christians committed to the cause of Christ step forward in uncompromising houses of worship, houses of worship that will say what God says, houses of worship that stand for what is morally right, culturally right, and socially right from God's holy word, not not houses of worship that rewrite what God says to make people feel better about their sin. Jeremiah 8.8 8 addresses that. How can you say we are wise because we have the word of God when your teachers have twisted God's word by rewriting it? We have entire denominations that have rewritten portions of God's word to now, to now accommodate so-called progressive standards in our times. They are not progressive, they are very regressive. Cultural sins, sexual sins, societal sin have been rewritten by nominal teachers to say, it's okay. Well, our church has rewritten that uh, outdated doctrine. It's not a sin for us anymore. As though that makes sense. It's okay if men marry men. It's okay if women 
marry women says so right here. It's on our website. Those churches, those denominations, those false teachers will now be held accountable. And if people die in their sins, they're going to be held responsible. It will be their fault. People perish. And unless there's repentance, they too will be punished. They are the Sardis church. Jesus talks about in Revelations 3. Message Bible again, right to Sardis. I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Up on your feet, take a deep breath. Maybe there's life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift you once had in your hands. The message you heard with your ears, grasp it again, grasp it again, and turn back to God. If you pull the covers back over your head and sleep on, oblivious to God, I'll return when you least expect it, break into your life like a thief in the night. But you still have a few Christians in Sardis who haven't ruined themselves wallowing in the muck of the world's ways. Holy Spirit is calling a remnant in the dead churches to come out of them and make a stand with him. There will now be a stark difference between the ecclesia Christ is building and the dead churches that he is not building. He's going to expose it. They will now, there will now come a stark radical difference between the real church Jesus is building and the fake church humanism has been building. One will say Jesus is the only way. The other will say, well, there's many ways. One will say God's word is true. The other will say, well, there's there's mitigating times and circumstances that, uh, that needs to be rewritten. Remember, that was key last election, 2016, uh, in the Democratic platform. They wanted us to rewrite the doctrines to be more progressive, as though God's word, as spoken, is no longer relevant. You're about to find out it is. The contrast between the alive church and the dead church will become more and more apparent in our times. As God's power fills, fills the one Christ is building and his judgment comes upon the fake church that is taking humanity down a wrong path and is damning the lives of men, women, boys, and girls. Make no mistake, Jesus is building a real church. One that is not rewriting what he said one that will make a stand for what he says, one that teaches biblical behaviors, one that points out the created order or paths of righteousness, one that won't, won't wink at sin, one that will preach what God says rather than, than what people want to hear, 
one that answers to God and God alone, one that confronts demon doctrines, one that points the path to heaven and exposes the path to hell. Dead churches won't do that. And God will hold them accountable. But real churches of Jesus will do that. And they are going to rise now out of in obscurity in some cases. They're going to rise now and be churches the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Boldness is coming. The definition of true Christianity has become vague and that must change. It's come to mean most anything. We've gone from theology to therapy from the pulpits. We've gone from therapy, therapy to motivational speaking instead of preaching, oftentimes not even using the scripture. In fact, we have major famous preachers that have admitted we don't use scripture because that confuses people. Your hirelings. We have distorted justification by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to cheap grace. Grace twisted and rewritten to include, to include willful sin, which has weakened holiness in our nation to the degree that those who openly sin are now invited into some pulpits and they're even applauded. There can be no doubt that it is too important of a time to play these kinds of humanistic games. It is time for Christ's real church to rise up. It's time for some real leaders in the body of Christ, some real men and women of strong faith to step forward. It's time to confront pretend Christianity. It's time to confront the compromise they voice. And it's time to sound the alarm. It's time for the pulpits of America to come alive uh, with, with, with the uncompromising word of the living God. It's time for the church's pulpits to be aflame again on fire with some passion for what God says, with a bold stand for Christ and his salvation in Jesus Christ and no other. It's time for the pulpits to bark. It's time for the real church to rise, one that refuses to be fed a salad of lies. It's time for real Christian leaders to rise up and the time is now. Those who proclaim the meat of God's word rather than pablum. Those who will not preach, preach weak gospel, compromising gospel, but will get on their face before God, hear what he's saying and speak it with boldness. Those who will not be intimidated into silence. Those who will make a public stand for how it ought to be according to the word of the living God. Dr. Martin Luther King displays this kind of commitment. He's the other history maker that I, I mentioned uh, when I started today. Dr. King is he's one of the greatest leaders in, in American history, I, I would say in world history, certainly one of them. 
And I've studied his life and have been inspired by his courage many times in my life. His stand for the cause of transforming America um, was an, an incredible stand. But in 1963, the cause led him to Birmingham, Alabama, where he was jailed for his stand. Dr. King asked for the help of the church and he asked for the help of the clergy for the just cause of equal rights. But that, that aid was withheld and much of the clergy stood by silent while he was jailed for what he believed. And then that clergy began to ridicule and question Dr. King's motives. Similar to how we have heard from the nominal church, even in our times, sadly. So on April 16, 1963, Dr. King got some paper and he wrote a letter to his fellow clergy members he wrote from his jail and newspapers printed what he wrote. I think it should be required reading for every student. And I think every person in the United States ought to be required to read his letter. I have pondered this letter probably 25 or 30 times myself. And it confronts me, it challenges me, it inspires me every single time. But picture this this civil rights champion sitting in jail because of a peaceful protest. He didn't riot. He had truth on his side, so he just voiced it and he made his stand. But he begins to write and I'll, I'll read some passages from it. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. I want to answer in patient and reasonable terms. I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th eight, century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometown, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Moreover, I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and all states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Justice. Too long delayed is justice denied. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking 
some laws, some laws and disobeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I'd be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. So I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the word of Almighty God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with God's word. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey ordinances that are morally wrong, like abortion or like funding abortion. I will not obey it. I don't care if it's the law of the land. I will not. It's an unjust law. I hope you're able to see the distinction I'm trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate invading or defying the law. That would be anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral word, God's law, was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal in Germany. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I'm sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today 
I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed. I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist. As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand and I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evidence that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will, be, will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified, and we must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality the, and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, who will remain true to it as long as the cords of life lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the protest in Montgomery a few years ago, I felt I would be supported by the church. I felt that the ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would, would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting our leadership. All too many others have been more conscious or cautious than courageous and have remained silent 
behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In the midst of blatant injustice inflicted upon the already weary, I've watched while churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I've heard many ministers say, well, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between sacred and secular. I've traveled the length and breadth of Alabama and Mississippi and all other Southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings. And I've looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointed heavenward. And I have beheld the impressing, impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. And over and over and over, I've, I found myself asking what kind of people worship here? Who's their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of nullification? Where were their voices when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and fatigued men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency? to the bright hills of creative protest and justice. In deep disappointment, I've wept over the passivity of the church. But be, be assured, my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I'm in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson and the great grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of societies. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to con convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man, small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial con 
contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the reality or the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as a as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Perhaps once again, I've been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inex, uh, exe, uh, inextricably, whatever, he could talk better than me, inexorably bound to the status quo? To save our nation and the world, perhaps? I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the remnant within the church, the true ecclesia, the hope of the world. He saw it 50 some years ago. The true hope is the true ecclesia. But again, I'm thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzed chains of conformity and joined us in active partnership in the struggle for freedom. They have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ in troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. And I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. I too hope the true church rises to meet the challenge of this decisive hour. It was their turn then it is our turn now. May we rise and meet this occasion. May our church leaders rise to meet this occasion. May churches all over this nation rise, be who they're supposed to be and rise to this occasion. That's my prayer in Jesus name. Hallelujah time to rise. Singers and musicians come. It's time to rise to the occasion. May these words challenge us to make the most aggressive stand for our faith that we've ever made. I know I have been called to make the most aggressive stand that I have ever made. And I'm honored to do it because I feel like it's the the present call of the Holy Spirit. I felt so, I felt so pointed these past few weeks, just driven to raise my voice. We're about to win a great victory, but we cannot sleep through the finish line.
We can't sleep through the finish line. We have to bark. It's time to bark. Stand, if you will, please. Lord, across this nation and world, the challenge of your Holy Spirit is so clear. It comes to us in so many different voices. We just heard from a few today. But we could go on and on about the history makers and those who make their stand. But I pray, God, that history makers in every state would now rise. A radical remnant willing to make a stand. Rising, Lord, to declare, to voice what you say. Not intimidated, not bullied. Understanding the true message and the true true power of the message of Jesus Christ, of freedom for all, freedom for, for all races, freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, freedom to live destiny. It's time, Lord. that we put an antichrist agenda in the ground of this nation, Lord. Bury it. Bury it. So that our children can rise in destiny, can rise in freedom, being who you have ordained them to be. May a passionate voice begin to rise from the pulpits of America these next few weeks, driven with a passion to stand for King Jesus, driven by a disdain for political, correct, rewritten doctrines of demons. It's time, Lord, I believe, God, you are going to empower that church that rises in your passion with your word on their lips, and you are going to anoint them to change things. You are going to anoint a people that will rise and change the history of this nation. You will rise upon them with great anointing and they will bark out the warning of the living God, establishing the territory of the kingdom of God and His glory in a new era. It's our time now. May we rise to this challenge. Confront the evil. Give us boldness, faces like flint, set with with the gospel and uncompromise it. No compromise whatsoever. Extend to us, God, supernatural favor. Extend to the pulpits that are aflame with the gospel around this nation now great favor, great resources, abundance. 
to take everything now and sprint across the finish line of historic change. May we run that race without intimidation and with, with true passion for you and your kingdom. Let it rise, Lord. Let the anointing of favor be poured out. Let the anointing of the watchman be poured out upon your true church now. Pour out the watchman anointing to shout the message. Pour out the anointing, Lord, of the watchman to shout the message of the king into the land. Pour out the anointing, Lord, of the watchman to shout the message of King Jesus into every state into the world in Jesus' name.